Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast where we talk about new books in media and communication. I am your host, Marcy Maserato, Assistant Professor of Digital Communication at Georgian Court University by the beautiful Jersey Shore. Today's guest is Ruth Palmer, Assistant Professor of Communication at IE University in Spain. And the topic of our conversation is her book, Becoming the News, How Ordinary People Respond to the Media Spotlight. Welcome, Ruth, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, So to familiarize uh, our, our listeners with your work and a little bit of your background. Um, share a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing and what you've um, done in the past. And um, and yes. Sure. So I am now, as you said, a professor of communication at IE University in Madrid in Spain. Um, and here I teach a lot of different kinds of courses about communication, but my research focuses on journalism studies. So most people who do journalism studies focus on the way the news is produced. Historically, that's been a big focus, or they focus on the content of news, um, analyzing you know, the way that stories are told in the news, what's included, what's not included, um, different ways that those stories might be distorted or framed. Um, my specialty is news audiences. So I actually am really interested in how people who are not journalists think and feel about journalism. And, you know, this is a this is an interest that that I began to become interested in this when I was a graduate student at Columbia University. I went to the journalism school there. Um, And, you know, most people that go there are studying to be journalists. But I was in the Ph.D. program um, studying communication. And I noticed that there was this kind of gap in our syllabi, you know, the things that we were studying there. We studied a lot about journalism production um, and a lot about the content of news, but less about how just ordinary people think about news. Um, So that's the focus of most of my research. And I wrote my dissertation about people who were in the news. Um, And that is the the work that actually has turned into this book now. And have you ever worked as a journalist yourself? No, I haven't worked as a journalist. And, you know, it's interesting you ask that because when I was um, developing the ideas for this book, And when I was a graduate student, I was very self-conscious about that. You know, I thought there I was in this like glorious institution. You know, I mean, the Columbia Journalism School gives out the Pulitzer Prizes. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, they're pretty stellar. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, it really is this, you know, I was surrounded by these luminaries who are, you know, these fantastic journalists teaching these amazing courses. Um, And I kind of thought, well, I had initially planned on focusing on something other than journalism. You know, because I was in this communication program and I just thought, well, you know, journalists should be writing about journalism. But actually, um, when it comes to writing about how people who are not journalists think about journalism, I think it's actually an advantage to not have been a journalist. And I say that because um, there's a kind of consensual understanding of what journalism is and the role that it plays in society that people who work in journalism and frankly near journalism and among you know a lot of academics who study journalism, they sort of participate in that kind of consensual understanding. Um, and there are a lot of things that they kind of take for granted about journalism, 
that are not obvious at all to people outside of that kind of um, central journalistic area or kind of the penumbra of that, you know? Um, so I actually grew to think of it as an advantage to not have been a journalist. Um, I have a lot of respect for what journalists do, but when it comes to understanding how just ordinary citizens think and feel about the news media, I think it can actually help to be an outsider myself. Okay. So that the perspective, since you're writing about like the title of your book, how ordinary people respond to media spotlight. So really I do, I do think that that comes across in your in your writing that you do find it empowering that you're really talking about non-journalists in, you know, the non-journalist perspective from a non-journalist perspective, right? Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Just this idea of, well, you're talking about people who are not in the spotlight and you're coming at it from somebody who isn't in that journalistic spotlight either. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I really make a point of saying in the introduction to the book that, um, you know, I, I recognize that sometimes, especially journalists might read the book and think, well, why isn't she trying to get the journalist's perspective on all these scenarios? Because the book is made up of, you know, all of these interviews that I did with people who were the subjects of news stories. So these are just ordinary people who wound up in the news for many different reasons, right? Um, and I asked them to sit down with me and I interviewed them about their experience talking to journalists, you know, what had happened to them that had caught the attention of journalists in the first place, how did the, the interview process with journalists go, and then what they thought about the way that they were portrayed in the news and, you know, anything that happened afterwards. So it's really, the book is made up pretty much entirely of their stories and, you know, my reflection on their stories. And, you know, I found a lot of patterns within those stories, of course. Um, but I really don't take, you know, I'm not examining each of the, their different scenarios from the journalist's point of view. And, you know, I've had some journalists say, well, you know, reading these, these new subjects, uh, stories about what happened, I could just imagine what the journalists thought in those situations, but you didn't ask them, you know? Um, and my sort of response to that is that, well, first of all, journalists are, <laughs> journalists write a lot about their own perspective. Um, so they don't really need me to help them out. Like they can do it better than I can. Um, but also the book is about subjective experience. You know, it's, it's really not about trying to get to the bottom of, objectively speaking, what happened in any of these scenarios. You know what I mean? So, you know, the question is not whether or not, um, whether, I don't know, Becky actually was deceived by journalists. It's whether she felt deceived. You know, that's what I'm interested in. It's not whether she was actually misquoted. It's whether she felt misquoted and why. You know, um, so it's very, very focused on the subject's perspective. Right. I, I so I, I mean, full full disclosure, I mean, I, I love your book. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I really, really do. I um, I first came across it when uh, I was, I saw an opportunity to, to, to write a book review. So I was asked to write a book review. And then they, you know, they said, hey, he, these are the list of, of books that need it, uh, that, you know, that we're looking for reviews on. And I said, okay, uh, Becoming the News sounds really interesting. And so I ended up doing a review on this, uh, which you, I think you had mentioned off air that you had, in fact, read it because I wrote it, yes, yes. I think, in 2018 for HNET. And I was just so almost mesmerized by the fact that you really are focusing on something that just doesn't get talked about, but is so common. It's so common. This happens all the time. But when you think about even teaching journalism, which I began to do after I read your book, or right around the same time I was reading your book, I started teaching oh, yeah. journalism courses. And I said, this is such a 
underrated, but such a significant component of the discourse of how, you know, journalists or or non-journalists or whatever, how we, we kind of are in that world, right? In the journalism world, because, um, it's so important to to think about individuals who are not in the public eye and how they react to it, right? Um, so I just I, I was just kind of really fascinated that and and intrigued that this had never been written before, that this is not really a perspective that had been talked about a lot previously. So I, I really definitely appreciate your research here, and I appreciate that you uh, and we'll talk more about it that you uh, do talk about some of the the shortcomings and and some of the mm-hmm. the the difficulty and the nuances in terms of how do you really um, deal with this issue? Because it's, it's not black and white. You know, you have the journalist perspective, you have the audience's perspective and you have like the public. So there's just so many different things that you're, you're really wanting to very clearly talk about this big, big issue and really focusing on kind of these emotional reactions from these non um, public figures and, and how they get quoted and how they get represented and things like that. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I mean, I th- I I am still completely fascinated by this subject. <laughs> Good, <laughs> you know, like ten years after I started thinking about doing this project, I continue to find it completely, totally fascinating. And you know, for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned, I mean, we see people, ordinary people, private citizens, in the news all the time. You know, there's absolutely no sign that that is changing as journalism, you know, evolves, right? That is something that is is continuous. And, you know, certainly there are certain public figures that dominate the news. There's no question about that. Um, but these private citizens sort of cycle in and out, right? And so every once in a while, there's a particular person who's in the news quite prominently, and then they just disappear, you know? Um or, but every single day, if we watch the news, listen to the news, read the news, there are individuals that are being asked for their perspective or consulted as experts or portrayed in human interest stories. And, you know, it's funny that they play such a prominent role. And, you know, every once in a while, we might wonder, you know, why are they talking to a journalist? You know, like if some, if, you know, a, a sobbing mother who's just lost a child or something like that, or, you know, I mean, there are moments when we sort of step back and we kind of wonder about them as people. But I think that there's such, they fit so seamlessly into our expectations of what the news is that we frequently don't give them a whole lot of extra attention. And, you know, journalists themselves depend a lot on ordinary people as sources. You know, they really couldn't, you know, do what they do. And, create the news without the contribution of all of these ordinary people. And they're the first to say so. You know, I think journalists give them, give, you know, all of their sources a lot of credit. Um, But at the same time, because of the nature of journalistic work, you know, journalists are often overworked. They're in a rush. um, They don't really have a lot of um, time or they haven't been sort of trained to take the time to, you know, check back in with the ordinary people that they write about. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and I think you mentioned that this is a, a continuous process and I really think it's going to become even more prominent in the age of social media. Yeah. I say the age of social media, we've, we've been in it for a while, but just the idea of like, vi- like virality in terms of, you know, a, a tweet going viral, a post, any sort of post or video going viral, um, you know, and, and kind of, and even though it's, it's not in the journalistic perspective, I'm also kind of fascinated from a media studies perspective of what it really means to become a viral sensation. Oh and, yeah. Totally. And all of a sudden, and also, and all of a sudden like wake up quote 
internet famous, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, yep. I, I can't even imagine, like if I posted a video of mine, I mean, I do video work if I post a video and then it had a million views in the morning, I don't even know what I would do because all of a sudden you have so much attention that you're like, wait, why? <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, yeah. And I think it, it does become even more complex when you're dealing with some heavy hitting issues in the media spotlight with journalism. And I think you also mentioned this in the book in terms of those who are uh, very hesitant about the media. They're just like, no, I don't want to talk to you. And those who seek it. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. kind of like, what does that really mean? Right. Because you may seek the media attention, but it may not be the kind of attention that you want or the relationship that you are wanting, like, you know, right. Right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think one of the things um, that interested me in about this topic in the first place is I think that that people who when ordinary people do wind up in the news and we see them there, um, often we assume kind of negative things about what's motivating them negative or reductive, right? It's easy to assume, oh, they're just sort of seeking attention, um, you know, that they're, this is kind of a narcissistic pursuit. And, you know, one of the things that actually really inspired my book was another book um, called The Journalist and the Murderer, which is um, by Janet Malcolm, who writes for The New Yorker, or, you know, periodically, or, you know, this book started out um, as an, a two-part essay that she wrote for The New Yorker, and I think it was 1989, and the book, book was published in 1990. And, you know, I mean, it's an amazing book, um, but of course, it's a journalist, a piece of journalism, you know, and so it focuses on one very interesting but very extreme case of this, uh, of a news subject who's a, you know, he's, he, as it turns out, he's a, con- he, he's a convicted murderer, um, and he confides in a journalist in ways that he probably shouldn't, and the journalist ultimately publishes a book that that betrays that trust, right? Um, and in that book, Malcolm portrays the subject as a narcissist. I mean, there's little question in the book that this person is a narcissist, and the narcissism is what motivates him to tell all of this stuff to a journalist. And I think that we actually, even when we're thinking about just ordinary people that we may see in the news, we sometimes assume that their motives are sort of similarly self-serving, or just, or even just that they're they're kind of stupid. Like they probably haven't thought this through, um, you know that kind of thing. But what I found, you know, I, I dedicate a whole chapter really to the reasons why people agree to to be in the news. Um, and what I find is that they have a lot of different reasons. You know, you mentioned social media, and you might think, well, you know, in a day the day these days of social media, anybody who wants can can you know publish themselves. You know, they can publish their own story. They can publicize their own venture. But what I found was actually that for most private citizens, sure, that's true, but they don't have any audience to speak of. You know what I mean? What's what's significant about speaking to a journalist who works for an established news organization is that they have a built-in audience, right? And so it's a tremendous opportunity for ordinary citizens to address a much larger audience than is normally available to them. So they can publicize something, you know, a, a venture of their own. They can you know, just voice their opinion. They can witness to something, you know? Um, And some people also mention that they find it fun, you know, like they enjoy the attention. Um, Mean, you know, meanwhile, there are people who really don't like the attention, but they're willing to speak to journalists and talk to the media because, you know, they have some other reason that's very compelling. You know, so for example, I tell a story, actually, this is appropriate right now since we're dealing with the the coronavirus. at the moment, but in the story I tell, um, in the book I tell a story of a woman who 
contracted a very serious uh, contagious illness when she was pregnant. And um, I mean, it's a, it's kind of an amazing story. She becomes very ill and she is, you know, admitted to the hospital and is put into a coma, an induced coma, and wakes up and has lost the baby. So it's, a, you know, it's a tragedy, really. And, um, but by the time she wakes up, her family has already contacted the press to let them know that this illness is much more dangerous for pregnant women than had been previously understood. Um, you know, it was really important for her family, even when she was in this, you know, this kind of dire situation, it was important for the family to get the word out, right? So by the time she woke up, there were all these journalists that wanted to talk to her about this, you know? And this is exactly the sort of scenario where you may think, well, you know, it, where it may be sort of hard to understand why somebody who's going through that would agree to sit down to like a television interview. Um, you know, in this particular person, I call her Allegra in the book, she she really did not like attention in general. You know, she was very soft-spoken. Um, she described herself as kind of timid, no interest in the media spotlight in general. But for her, talking to the media was really important because she felt that if she could help one pregnant woman, you know, um, just let, you know, even one pregnant woman know how dangerous this illness could be for pregnant mothers, then, you know, it would all be worth it. You know, um, and she actually had a kind of harrowing experience talking to the press. And yet, you know, looking back, she still felt like it was worth it because, you know, because of the potential benefits, you know. And so, I mean, I guess the, the key point is that there are a lot of really good reasons, even in this day and age, for private citizens to agree to speak to reporters um, even though it can be kind of a risky thing to do. Sure. And, and I think that you you do highlight that a lot in the book, again, about the spectrum of those who don't want to talk to the media, those who seek it out and and everything in between, and also the different reasons as to why they do and they don't. Um, because, you know, to think that somebody who's seeking out the media is narcissistic is not necessarily true because there could be other reasons as to why they may want to speak to the media or the same thing as to someone who's avoiding it may be that there's a lot of different reasons why they want to avoid it. And there are those who like the example that you just used that, well, they may not want to be part of the media, you know, speak to the media, but they feel like they have to uh, and so on and so forth. So I think that there's, there really is so many different reasons. And I think a lot of times um, we see the audience being perhaps a bit cruel to, you know, to those individuals who do become part of the media, whether or not they were portrayed, quote, appropriately. And I don't know if how you feel about that, about like the audience. Um, so you have the, the the journalist handling of the, the situation as well as, as you know, because when you think about social media, uh, people can be incredibly cruel, you know, thinking about most recently, like Carolyn Flack and kind of like, the media portrayal of her and then just how cruel people can be online. So I don't know if you see any sort of influence on like the cruelty of the internet and social media relating to what happens to these individuals that do speak to journalists. Cause I know you mentioned some of that in the book, but I'm just wondering if you can ex expand on that. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. This book, um, when I, after I wrote it, you know, with these academic books, they, um, the, this book was published by Columbia University Press, but, you know, they followed the typical process where, you know, the book is sent out to reviewers and, um, you know, the reviewers give feedback. And, you know, ultimately, of course, I got a contract for the book and um, everything has worked out great. Um, but one of the reviewers said, you know, 
this seems a little bit like an old media phenomenon, you know, making the news like, you know, and, um, and in fact, there are things about it that are very sort of old media in the sense that for the people that I interviewed, some of the things that they described, like, you know, feeling briefly famous, you know, um, managing, um, just trying to manage the interview, um, things like that, you know, they predate the internet for sure. Um, you know, people like they talk to me about, you know, one of the questions I asked in the interview was, well, have you ever been in the news before? And some of them had as children, you know, and they remembered their family cutting the article out of the newspaper. You know what yeah. I mean? And so there's <laughs> yes. a thing, it has this like old media quality to it, but also there's, it's also a new media phenomenon. And I, and I address that directly in the book throughout, but I also have a chapter that specifically addresses what it's like to make the news in a digital world. Um, what I find is that, you know, the, the reaction of the audience when you're in the news, um, I mean, there are sort of two, two main ways that this can play out, right? When you're, you become a news subject. One is the default response from the audience. Um, and it happens as long as you're not portrayed in a negative way, um, which is that there's, there's positive status in it. You know, being chosen to be in the news is something that the public rewards by saying congratulations. You know, just being chosen at all, almost no matter why, as long as the story is not negative, you know, gets people a lot of uh, a lot of congratulatory feedback, right? Um, and so, you know, that happens even more if they're portrayed positively, right? Um, so, what that means today is that there's, you know, there's the normal kind of status where all of a sudden, you know, your boss recognizes you and. <laughs> And, you know, says it, it seems to like you better because you, you know, made the news. Um, so there's a sort of aura of status around you, but also online that there are repercussions of that status. Right. And so um, the way that that plays out on the positive side is that, you know, your story circulates more. You know, there, it, the potential audience is larger. So, you're, you, know, you know, everyone, you know, on social media circulates your story, congratulates you. Um, you know, you can some people were. Described getting comments from strangers online and through social media, you know, because remember, of course, now in this day and age, everyone or many people are reading their news on the same devices they can use to then turn around and send a message directly to the person in the story, right? Right. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, and also those stories adhere to people in searches, right? Um, so this is something that we a lot of people don't think about so much, but when you're for an ordinary citizen. If you're in a news story, news story, news organizations tend to have in, often have invested money in search engine optimization. Um, but for various reasons that I don't really need to go into, news news stories published by established news outlets do pretty well in Google searches, right? So after you're in a news story, if someone Googles your name, that news story will probably come up. You know, and if it's a New York Times story, depending on how much other stuff there is on the Internet about you, it may come up filling like multiple pages of your search results. Right. Um, so that means that if you're depicted positively or even in a sort of neutral way, but in a news outlet with a lot of status, that can help your online reputation for potentially a long period into the future. Right. Now, absolutely. You know, but but there's a there's a kind of an ugly negative side to this, right? Um, to the the opposite side, yeah. <laughs> exactly, which is that if you're portrayed in a more negative light, um, whether you committed a crime or are accused of committing a crime, 
um, or are just simply portrayed in a way that's a little bit more, you know, or, you know, a little bit or a lot more negative, um, then actually, then those stories also adhere to you online, right? And um, so, you know, when people search for you well into the future, the first thing that they may find is this news story that documented, you know, the worst moment in your life or a big mistake you made once, um, you know, or an article quoting you as having said something that people interpreted in a negative way. Um, and, you know, also when that news story comes out, you have to deal with negative feedback, you know, uh, in social media, negative comments on the news outlet itself. You know, a lot of news outlets, of course, have those comment sections um, right below the article. People can be very nasty. Um, and unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of other scholars who study this who have found the same thing. But, you know, I certainly found that women and minorities got the worst feedback. You know, like even in, you know, even in stories that did not pay, portray them in a particularly negative way, there were some comments, at least, that were just kind of sexist comments, you know, um, or just kind of mean. And um, so, you know, I'm glad you asked that question, because this is an aspect of making the news that a lot of people still don't anticipate. Right. And for ordinary people who are approached by journalists, they should think about this, you know, like it's. It's one thing to be asked for just a quick quote about something very innocuous, but if a journalist approaches you and asks you to talk about a controversial issue, you know, you really have to consider whether you want to be associated with that issue um, for a long period of time into the future, you know, which is what happens when these stories are published online. Right. And so, yeah, and, and it definitely makes, um, now that we live in this digital world, it just, the news really does just stay there. Like, tw like tw you know, tweets will come back and haunt people. People have lost jobs, right. you know, for something that they said years ago. And so that's something that I definitely talk about uh, with my students is the idea of, you know, just what it means to be like a digital citizen nowadays and how you interact with other people online and what you say online, because it kind of doesn't really go away, even if you delete yeah. it. Absolutely. And the thing about news stories that are written about private citizens is that those private citizens also don't control those stories, right? They don't control what goes into them. So, you know, when you speak to a journalist, the journalist, and, you know, this is actually a core narrative in the book, is that the process of becoming a news subject of, you know, being approached by a journalist and interacting with them, you know, and being interviewed by them, um, and then being portrayed by them is a process of, of the subject gradually giving up control over their own story to the journalist, right? Um, so that, that, that news story, when it's published online um, and circulates far and wide, potentially well into the future, um, is a story that, that you haven't made yourself, um, you know, which on the one hand, that's where the credibility of a news story, you know, comes from, right? Yes, um, exactly. Is that the subject didn't write it themselves. That's why it's believable to the audience, of course, you know? Um, and if you think about it, that's the, the case with reputation in general, is that our reputation can't be in our own hands. We can't control it. Otherwise, it would lose all credibility, you know? Otherwise, it would just be us advertising how great we are, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you need uh, to have those external sources, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, a news story, that's sort of, um, I call it in the book, the credibility paradox for a news subject, right? Is that, you know, you the status and all the benefits of appearing in a news story, the credibility, um, the big audience, all of those things only come from giving control of your story over to a journalist, right? 
Um, but therein lies the risk, right? You don't control what they put in the story. And, you know, everyone I interviewed said that, you know, and some of them, I should say, had more experience talking to journalists than others, right? So some of them, you know, worked in organizations where, you know, they periodically had to talk to the press. None of them were public figures and none of them had jobs that required constant interaction with the press, but some of them had done it more than others. Um, but they all talked about at some point in the process, having a realization, if they hadn't expected it already, at some point they had a realization that they, that they did not control this, right? That, you know, it was up to the journalists now. And, you know, for a lot of people, that's kind of uncomfortable, you know, if not downright scary, it depends what the story is about, but it can be quite terrifying to, you know, talk about something that you know is a sensitive issue um, and then sit back and just wait to see what the journalist does with that story. It can be quite scary. Um, and as you said, now, you know, then the story will be online and you just kind of have to deal with the repercussions of how the journalist has portrayed, you know, what you had thought was your story. Um, so, you know, it, it is it is a risky process. Yeah, it is because, you know, and, and I know that you mentioned uh, there's a lot of lot of a lot of examples in here. And one of them is, you know, particularly when you think about that you may be telling your story and you believe it's going to be, you know, X, Y, Z, but perhaps the quote agenda that the journalist has or the story they're going after is really kind of the opposite of what it is, that you, the, the, the side that you're telling. So it ends up that you're not being misquoted. You're not even being taken out of context, but your argument is being used as almost like a counter argument for what the journalist is saying. So then yeah. all of a sudden you have like an emotional reaction, which you talk about in one of the chapters, this idea of like the existential, you know, aesthetic and emotional effects of, of your media self. Right. Right. And how that's challenging for some individuals, again, depending on how heavy hitting and controversial that topic is, but that can really be devastating when you pick up a newspaper or see, you know, the news article online going, wow, that's really not what I thought this was going to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, the book really follows the the sort of chronological arc of a news subject's experience. You know, so I start with um, by talking about, okay, what, what are the things that happen to journal to these people who that catch journalists attention in the first place? You know, some people witness something or, you know, they're part of a big event or they're an expert and then they get approached by a journalist. And then, you know, I have a couple of chapters that talk about the interview process right? And what you're describing really begins during the interview process, right? The subject sometimes, you know, the subject comes into the interview with an idea of what, you know, what they want to contribute and sort of an, a, a vision of what the story is going to be, you know, an idea of what the frame, you know, I call it in the book, um, drawing on, you know, a common uh, concept in, in um in communication and media studies. So they have this idea of how the story will be framed. In other words, that how the story is going to be presented, right? Um, but of course the journalist comes in with their own idea of how the story will be presented. And, you know, depending where they are, um, on where they are in the reporting process, they may have a very well-formed idea about what the final story is going to look like, or they may not, they may be at the big, they may, um, at the very beginning of the reporting process. So they may be very open-minded. But in any case, the goals of these two figures in this interaction are different. And, um, you know, and they often have different ideas about what they think the story should be like. And so, you know, I talk about different scenarios, um, you know, that, that capture the range of how much difference there can be between what the subject thinks 
the story is going to be like and what the journalist does, right? And what happens in this interaction and in the interview is that subjects are trying to gauge based on the little cues that in, that in, um, journalists are giving off. They're trying to figure out what the journalist is going to is going to write, you know, what the story is, so that the subject can make little adjustments to what they say, right? Um, this is kind of a natural thing that happens in any sort of interaction, right? We're trying to figure out what the other person is about, what they're, you know, we're trying to respond to their questions in a way that's going to suit their needs, while also, you know, kind of defending our own um, self-interests, right? Um, and, you know, what I find is that some people go into these stories and they immediately detect that the journalist has a different idea in mind, you know, for the story. Like the journalist might be a little bit um, adversarial or, you know, might push back against what the subject is saying. And this, this tends to happen when the subject is talking to the journalist for a more controversial story um, or for a story about, you know, a political issue that clearly has multiple sides. Um, you know, the journalist might ask, start asking these these questions that kind of push the subject, right? And the subject tries to sort of push back, um, which can be very uncomfortable for the subject, right? But at least it reveals to the subject that the journalist isn't just gonna buy what they're selling wholesale. You know what I mean? That, um, that the journalist might be a little skeptical. It helps prepare the subject for the possibility that the story won't be exactly what the subject wants it to be, right? Now, there are other cases where um, during the interaction, the subject thinks that the journalist is going to write exactly the story that they want, that they, the subject, want, right? Everything seems very friendly. The subject's, or the journalist is asking all sorts of wonderful questions. The subject is perfectly at ease. Um, and the subject gets a, starts to form an idea of what the journalist is going to write, but they turn out to be wrong. Um, you know, so that then when they see the story, they actually feel a little bit betrayed by the journalist. Um, now, this doesn't happen in every case by any means, right? Um, this is actually a central argument in Janet Malcolm's book, The Journalist and the Murderer. She argues that all subjects feel this way. I found that only sometimes does the subject feel like the journalist has misled them during the interview process into thinking that the story will be very different from, from um, will be a particular thing, I should say, and then, you know, turns out to write a very different story, right? Um, but that can be really uncomfortable for the subject because, of course, they don't they don't anticipate it. They don't expect it. And then when they see the published story, they're like, wait a minute. You know, that's not what I thought it would be. You know, and sometimes it's a fairly minor disappointment. Um, something like, well, geez, you know, I, I talked so much, you know, like the journalist was, you know, talked to me for like an hour um, and only used this tiny quote. Right. So, you know, sometimes it's a fairly minor, it, you know, that's not a huge disappointment. But the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, that happens a lot that during, you know, the journalists interview people for long periods of time and only like pick and choose something. And a lot of um, a lot of subjects are not anticipating that, you know, they, they haven't had that experience before. Um, and then there's another scenario that can happen, which is that um, either during the interview or when the story comes out, the subject realizes that they've been what I call miscast in the story, meaning that they're, um, this, the journalist is, has basically usually kind of written the story already and has sought them out, has sought out a subject to fit a particular role, right? Um, it would sound like, it might sound like this doesn't happen very often, but actually it's pretty common that journalists are nearing the end of reporting a story and they just need one quote from somebody, right? And they need it to be, say, a professor who's going to be skeptical about an issue, 
right? Um, or a student who's going to present an alternative view to, to something they're reporting on, right? From the subject's point of view, sometimes what that feels like is that the journalist starts asking them questions, pushing them to try to say a particular thing, okay? Um, and the people that I interviewed really did not like that because they felt like, first of all, the journalist wasn't really listening to what they had to say, but also because they were being pushed to say something to suit the journalist's needs, but that would misrepresent them. And that then they would later have to deal with the repercussions of that because everyone would read or see them on television saying something that they didn't really mean, right? Um, and that can be very uncomfortable. And you know, for some people, they didn't really realize that until they saw the story. And they were like, oh my God, I've been kind of miscast in this story. You know, and going back to what we were saying before, they could be, you know, that story kind of misrepresenting them is out there potentially for a long time. Right. So that's, you know, kind of one of the dangers. Um, and like I said, people sometimes start to detect that that's happening even during the interview stage. But it can be very hard for them to prevent it. You know, it's hard for somebody to, to avoid saying what, you know, a very skilled journalist kind of is pushing them to say. Right. And, and I think that you really talk about that in um, specifically in Chapter five, uh, Truth, Perceptions and Consequences, How New Subjects Judge Accuracy and Error which is fundamentally different to how journalists make that judgment. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, that's absolutely right. So I have two chapters that deal with how it, how people feel and how they respond when they actually see the published story. Um, and the first one is, is about accuracy and error. Right. And what I find is that um, new subjects do see and interpret accuracy of stories in a very different way than journalists do, as you said, right? So um, whereas journalists tend to assess accuracy, you know, in a facts-based way, right? Um, they are interested in whether the, the facts of the story are verifiably true, right? Um, and it's an error if it's verifiably false, right? So an incorrect name, right? That's an error. That That's something they might correct. Um, Whereas what I've, and, and you know, if, if you were to say to a journalist, well, you know, fact, all the facts are right, but, you know, I think you focused on the wrong thing, right? Um, or you left out really important stuff. The journalist would probably say, well, you know, that's my prerogative. It's my story. You know, um, that's your subjective point of view, but my, my story is accurate, right? Whereas the subjects that I spoke to, you know, I asked them, you know, to talk about the errors that they, you know, whether or not the stories they were in were accurate, um, you know, what the errors were that they detected. And um, first of all, a number of, the, a, a number of them didn't even remember the errors, okay, um, until, you know, at the end of the interview, I usually showed them the story and asked them if there was anything in it that they had forgotten. And they would say, oh, yeah, this was a mistake. This was an error. And they would point to something. And the errors that they were most dismissive of were factual errors. They were exactly the kinds of errors that journalists care about, you know? Right, right. Um, it's the opposite. Yeah, they, they, the audience and the journalists definitely have such a different view about what they look at for errors and then what they place on the emphasis. Like, what is their totally. emphasis of saying? Yeah, this I mean, is, yeah. It's, yeah, and it's not what you would expect either, necessarily. Like, I, I even spoke to somebody whose name was spelled wrong. <laughs> Right. I, I recall. Yes. Yeah. yeah I recall she that. Did, she she didn't that care. Example. She, just, she right. dismissed that. And, you know, the reason was she she was the subject of a major profile in a newspaper and it was terrific for her business. You know, and she was like, look, I don't care if they spell my misspelled my name once. 
You know, in other places in the story, they'd spelled it right. And the status and publicity she'd gotten from the from the story were like gold, you know. And so she was very dismissive of, of those, you know, what she thought were very small, inconsequential errors. And I found that to be a pattern, right? Inconsequential is the word. So the, the subjects that I interviewed dismissed errors that they felt were not going to have negative consequences for them, right? And that included most of those little factual errors that's, that journalists find the most problematic and embarrassing, right? Um, instead, the people I interviewed were bothered by what they, what they interpreted as errors um, that had negative consequences for their reputations or goals, right? Um, so I heard from many people that, they felt like it was an error to omit a particular piece of information, right, that they thought fundamentally changed the story, you know, or, you know, I talked to some people who felt that the tone of the story was, you know, didn't capture accurately their experience, you know. Um, and, you know, these things may be, they may sound small, but for subjects, their reputation can be on the line, <laughs> you know. Um, so if the story, it feels to them like it's, it's you know, misrepresenting them, even though it's factually correct, um, you know, that can be really painful for them and cause them a lot of problems, you know, or, you know, just to give you an example, um, like I interviewed a woman who, um, who was the subject of a story because she was, she and her husband were suing a, um, a religious organization. And it had to do with real estate, right? The religious organization had built a structure in a residential area, and she and her husband were suing this this religious organization. Um, and you know, you can imagine how a story about that could be interpreted by the public as being very anti, you know, um, whatever the religion is, right? Um, and in fact, the story. So she agreed to speak to a journalist about her lawsuit because she figured, you know, it would be better to talk about it than not, right? And to present her point of view. Um, and she explained to the journalist um, that she and her husband had sent a letter to the religious organization before they had constructed this structure, telling them, don't build this. You know, it violates local, you know, these local codes. Um, we will sue. Right. Um, and she sent the letter to the journalist. And, you know, the journalist did not include that piece of information in the story. Um, the per the, my interviewee, Michelle, felt like that was really vital, <laughs> uh, a vital piece of information for, you know, to tell readers who are in a position of trying to determine whether the lawsuit was fair or not, right? Um, and, you know, of course, they interpreted the lawsuit as very unfair. <laughs> and um, Michelle got a lot of hate, you know, mail and, you know, negative commentary online. Um, and she felt like it was it was because this piece of information was left out. Now, you know, of course, it's it is the journalist's prerogative to include some things and exclude some things. Um, but from her point of view, that was that was an error. You know, I mean, it was like clearly presenting a, a lopsided version of the story to not include that piece of information. Um, so, again, you know, you can see that that the subject and the journalist see, you know, determine accuracy very differently. And one of the results of that is that. Um, subjects sort of suspect that these errors are, you know, what they perceive as errors are not the kinds of things that news organizations will correct. So they don't report them. Um, you know, very few of the people that I talked to had actually told um, reporters or contacted the news organizations to say, hey, this is an error. Um, and it was because either they felt like the type, you know, the errors that bothered them, these sort of subjective errors, were not the kinds of things that news organizations would recognize as errors and correct, or they were these little minor seeming factual errors, 
which were the kinds of things that the news organization were, would correct, but that the subjects themselves did not think mattered. You know, and so that's a problem because you wind up with a lot of, you know, news organizations and journalists who are not getting this feedback from subjects. And especially, you know, in the case of these factual errors, you know, that they would correct, that's, you know, that's a problem for the audience too. You know, um, they're, they're getting incomplete or in, inaccurate information. Yeah. And, and that's why I think your the perspective that you bring in this book is so important and why I think this book really belongs in the classroom uh, is, is exactly the, the point that you just made is that there is a disconnect uh, in some ways between what the journalist wants and what the audience wants. And how do we really make that a smoother, more uh, mutually beneficial relationship? Because they're both they both have different goals. And I think the goals are sometimes they're matched, but sometimes they're not. And I, and I know you, you really wrap up the book a little bit talking about lessons for subjects and journalists. So can you talk a little bit about what some of your suggestions are? Uh, perhaps, you know, certainly we can bring this into a pedagogical perspective, but what about working professionals? What are some of the things that journalists can and should do? Um, and you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast about just kind of, you know, the audience really understanding perhaps how they can be uh, misrepresented. So can you talk a little bit more about the, the lessons that you came up with in, in terms of your research about how you, we can kind of smooth that relationship between the media and um, and the audience? Sure. I mean, I think it it's a difficult thing because as you said very well, I mean, these are subjects and journalists are coming into this encounter from very different positions and their goals are different. Uh, and there are times when, um, you know, clashes between their objectives um, and, you know, may be inevitable, right? Um, for, you know, obviously when we talk about journalists interacting with public figures, it's a great thing that the, the journalists are coming at the, inter the encounter skept with skepticism. Right. You know, um, yeah, and that's, with that's their own goals our democracy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. so important. Yes. You know, Absolutely. and so um, it's a little bit. You know, it's it's challenging to then think. Okay, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Obviously, no one's suggesting that, right? Um, journalists, we we of course want journalists to maintain their, um, you know, a certain amount of skepticism when they interact with all sources, like. You know, that's a, that is fundamental for what they do and, you know, the great service that they provide to the public. Um, however, it is true that private citizens are different from public figures. And, um, you know, insofar as journalists are always weighing, you know, have to weigh like public, the public's interest in a given news story with, you know, the, the dignity and privacy of their subjects, when they're when you're talking about private citizens, um, you know, the calculation is a little bit different from with public figures, right? Um, you know, the consequences for private citizens of, you know, being made very public very suddenly um, can be really quite damaging, um, you know, especially given the dynamics that we've talked about, you know, the existence of these stories or persistence, really, I should say, online for long periods of time, you know, the exposure of these private citizens to, you know, so much commentary and feedback online. Um, so I think, you know, there are a number of things that journalists can probably can consider, um, you know, while, of course, you know, maintaining always their, you know, primary responsibility to the general audience. Right. Um, one is that I think I do think that it's important to, um, 
you know, consider whether or not it's absolutely to necessary to name a private citizen subject in every case. If the story is um, may possibly have very negative repercussions for them or their families, um, the tradition in United States journalism is to name people, you know, who as soon as they're, for example, arrested of crimes and things like that. Um, you know, there's sort of a gray area when people are suspected of crimes or misbehaviors. Um, but I think it's really important to consider whether or not it's absolutely necessary in every case to name subjects. Um, you know, is there really public, you know, a public need to know the name of, of these people in every single case if the reputational damage for them can be so extensive and long lasting, you know? Um, so that's something that always has to be considered. It's not an easy question to answer, but it's something that should always be thought about. Um, I think it's important for journalists to always consider um, the context that the subject is living in, right? So um, one of the things that I, I talk about a lot in the book is that for new subjects, you know, these are their stories from their point of view, okay? We talk a lot in, you know, journalism and journalism studies about, you know, they're, you know, journalists journalists' stories, right? There comes a point in their production of, of stories where they really think of them as theirs. Um, but from the new subject's point of view, they're being approached by a journalist because of something that already happened. You know, like they were in, you know, they were on a flight that crashed or they witnessed some horrific thing or, you know, they're, they're an expert because they've spent their whole life studying something. So the journalist shows, shows up late <laughs> from subject's point of view. And, um, you know, often sort of intervenes in something that the subject has very strong feelings about, either because something traumatic just happened to them, or they're very invested in the cause or the subject that they're being inter interviewed about. And so I think even just teaching young journalists to recognize that and be aware of that so that when they're coming into especially situations of trauma, you know, um, especially right after something significant has happened to the subject, like the first question should not be the question that they want to, you know, broadcast. It should not be the question that they want to then quote in the paper. It should be, are you okay? You know, are you okay? Like, are you, do you need a blanket? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Um, so I think some empathy to, then. Yeah. I mean, I think empathy is really important, um, really important. And that connects to sort of the final message of the book, um, which is that, you know, from these interviews with news subjects who have a very specific perspective, you know, I, I also learned a lot about how people who are not journalists think about the news media in general. And, you know, a lot of the people I interviewed really liked the individual journalists they met. But when they start, talked about the news media more broadly, their, their, their tone really changed, you know, and it became clear that they really thought about um, journalists as a collective and certainly the media as this massive institution, they really thought of them as very powerful people in institutions who could really bully private citizens, right? Not that they always did, but that they could, you know? And so the conclusion I kind of draw from that is um, that, you know, especially in this time of growing distrust of the media and so forth, it's really important for journalists, individual journalists, but also journalistic institutions to try to convey a message of care you know, that they care for the community. You know what I mean? I think that that is really, really vital. It's not just we're here to inform you. It's that, you know, we care about you. Um, we are you. <laughs> you know, um, I think that that's really fundamental. 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a very powerful point that you make because when we think about a journalist or journalism as a discipline or journalistic entities or the mass media, they really do all have different connotations. And there, totally. I think there's a continuous distrust from the public to like mass media outlets, um, you know, and, and again, you can go into the whole spectrum of like, you know, fake news and, and again, the, the portrayals and things that you talk about in the book. So it is a very complex thing. It, it really is. Yeah, absolutely. It totally is. And, you know, one of the things that I, I argue at the end is that, you know, individual, I mean, one, one of the things I found was, as I said, that many of the people I interviewed had never really met a journalist before. Okay. Yeah. Um, Right. And, you know, a lot of them ultimately, you know, I've been sort of focusing on some of the negative takeaways, but a lot of them actually really liked the individual journalists that they met, right? They found them professional, friendly, caring in a lot of cases. So, you know, what this means is, of course, is that individual journalists are ambassadors for the field. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, you know, we tend to assume that because the products of journalism are so visible, the processes of journalism you know, the work that journalists are doing behind the scenes, that that too is visible to people, but it's not. And so when journalists go out into the community and interact with the public, um, you know, they are messengers for the industry. And like I said, ambassadors, and that's a really important role. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And, and, it, and that that point that you're making cannot be um, underestimated, especially as we, uh, you know, teach and train new journalists yeah. to go out into the totally. fields and, and really be empathetic and understanding of the other perspective, even though they still have a job that they have to do. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. Well, Ruth, uh, yeah, we've taken up a lot of your time, but as we wrap up, I, I'm, I'm sure our listeners are curious to know as, as am I, what are you, what are you currently working on? What's, what's a project for you that uh, is, is getting you as pumped as this? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked because I have a great project. Um, Yay, awesome. Yeah, so um, so I'm working now on people who avoid the news, news oh. avoidance. Um, specifically. A, specifically, yeah. So this is a topic that's getting more and more attention from scholars. And, you know, I was very lucky. I was brought in a couple of years ago to a project uh, to study news avoiders that was funded by the Reuters Institute at um, Oxford. And um, along with my co-author, Benjamin Toff, who's based at the University of Minnesota, um, we've conducted interviews with people who avoid the news in the UK and here in Spain, where I live, and also in the United States. And so um, hopefully we're going to be turning this into a book project. You know, but it's, you know, it's been completely fascinating because people who avoid the news are really out, you know, I've talked about the importance of interviewing people and getting the perspectives of people who are not journalists, but news avoiders are like even farther outside of the journalistic, you know, farther away from the journalistic establishment. And so, you know, understanding their points of view about journalism is really interesting. And, you know, I got to say, it's, you know, it's a really good reminder that um, people's you know, especially in the environment we live in, um, where there are so many ideas about the media that circulate in, you know, political rhetoric, but also on social media, people form their ideas about journalism from a lot of different influences, not just from the news that they themselves consume. And news avoiders are a good reminder of that because they have very strong opinions. Yes, they do. Yes. <laughs> you know, about journalism, even though they don't really consume it in some cases at all. Um, so it's a great project. I'm really excited about it. And, you know, Ben, Toff, and I will be writing about it in the future. Um, 
And so, you know, stay tuned. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. It just once that book is done, you send it over to me and we'll, we will do this again. Oh my <laughs> God, I'd love to. It's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, so thank you again for joining us, Ruth. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, we will see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.